Good morning. Good morning. Uh, had the blessing yesterday to, uh, if you want to throw that first slide up there. My oldest son, Joe, got married. It was really cool. Don in Peoria. And uh, it was funny, somebody came up to me and said, your son reminds me of a combination of a lumberjack, Amish hipster. And so it was kind of interesting. But when I got up there to do my part of the message, I said, you know, Joe, it's hard for me. It's kind of an emotional moment. And I said, because, you know, you're, he's getting married. And I'm thinking, it was just yesterday you were born, and you were such a cute baby. And I threw up his baby picture, if you can throw the next slide. <laughs> and so, uh, which kind of broke the ice. And, you know, I, I, I said, hey, I'm not speaking to you as a father today. I'm speaking to you uh, as a pastor to the husband of my daughter-in-law, right? So I, I welcomed... Uh, uh, Crystal into the family, and I said, don't worry about it, being part of the Shepherd family, and being married in the Shepherd family is a walk in the park, Jurassic Park, but nonetheless, a walk in the park, and so we had a good time, it was a blessing, and um, I had, uh, you know, Jason had offered to preach this week, and we had this plan for a while, and I thought, no, nah, I'll do it, I, I'll be all right, and, and then as the week went on, uh, I went down on Wednesday to help my son, I did redid his bathroom so he could sell his house, now that he's married, and then with everything that happened around Saturday morning, I'm thinking, why did I do that, right? And then I found out that women had an awesome time at the, uh, re- at the uh, retreat, right? So you're already fed, so if I don't bring it today, you're already good. Guys, get with your wife at lunchtime and find out what she talked about during the last two days. So, uh, but, uh, oh, I just lost my sermon. That was, that's weird. Um, there it is, okay. <laughs> so today we're talking, as we continue in this series, to change your world. Here's the thing, change, it takes action. It takes doing something, right? Nothing's ever going to change by just praying about it to change. God always uses people to do the changing, right? Sometimes he's changing us. Sometimes he's using us to change other people. And, you know, when, when we've gone through this series so far, to me, it's amazing with, you know, the technology of the day that Nehemiah was able to overcome so many obstacles and leads God's people to build protection for Jerusalem, right? I mean, it's incredible. 52 days. It's going to take us that long to get a parking lot by the time it's all done, right? But I think one of the things we have to recognize is that we play a part. I want you to imagine for a moment, this is kind of give us a kind of a context of where Nehemiah was. I want you to imagine for a moment you're back in high school. I know for some of you that was good. For some of you that's like, oh my gosh, right? But you're back in high school, and it's a school rally. Everybody's in the gym, and the, the, the principal calls you down to the front. And when you get down there, you're thinking, oh, man, he's going to recognize me for something. And he starts critiquing your hair and your clothes. And then while he's doing that, somebody comes down and pulls your pants down, and you're exposed at everybody there. All of a sudden, you're embarrassed, and you're ridiculed, and you feel like what? Nothing. And I think that's the intent of Sanballat and to, to, uh, can't remember his name now. I've got to put it back there. Tobias. You, you, they, Nehemiah, working, sure of his calling from God, is out there doing the work, and all he's doing is getting ridiculed, right? Let me tell you something. Leadership isn't easy. It's required. And here's the thing for leaders. You've got to be sure of God's calling in your life. But that's true for each and every one of us. We have to be sure of our God's calling for our life because Everything in the world is going to fight against what God wants you to do. That's the theme of, uh, of Nehemiah is that 
No matter what you try to do for God, there's going to be opposition, so be ready for it, right? Because the enemy is against everything God is trying to do. Everything. And so that would include us in terms of us doing it. To me, when I think about that, I think when Sanballat failed to recognize was that God was standing behind Nehemiah's effort and his people. And though it sometimes looks like the world's winning all around us, right, today, the world's winning all around us, and we're such a minority having no effect, we're just a bunch of weirdos. I think you had to remember that the, we're on the winning side, and we just got to remind ourselves by reading the book that God wins, that his will is never thwarted, right? So when we know God's got something for us to do, we can set out to do it with the confidence to know that where he ordains, he will sustain, he will provide what we need to accomplish his will in our lives. To me, it wasn't man building those walls, it was God using man, and we aren't trying to build a church here on our own, are we? To me, we're letting God work in and through us to be his church in the world, and our church, like the church universally, isn't frail. We've got a godly glue holding us together. We're fastened by the Father. We're built on the rock, held together by duct tape of deity, and you can't pull us apart, and you can't knock us down when we're walking with God, amen? To me, I think we have to recognize that we're on a mission for God. We have to understand that God's at work, and there's always going to be something to come against us. And when I read the passage as I was contemplating uh, driving back last night, and I almost fell asleep, so I'd have my wife take over. And so I, I was thinking, you know what? How many people in life are fighting against the goads, like uh, Paul said, right? When Jesus came against them. Why are you coming against me, Paul? I mean, it's a thing. Have you ever thought about it, that you may have been in opposition of God's work at some point in time? Let me give you an illustration why it's important. There's a boy in school while I was in school, he got in an argument with a classmate, and he punched him. So he punched him, he got a detention. Then when he went to detention, he got an argument with the teacher, and he punched the teacher. He got suspended. Then on his way home, you know, uh, he, he was doing something, a police officer addressed him, and he got mad at the police officer and punched the police officer and got arrested. Right? And then he got community service. Then... He's watching, uh, working in his community service on the side of the road, and all of a sudden the president's walking down the street, and there's all these people, and he sees the president. He didn't like the president, so he runs out to punch the president, and he went to prison. Here's the thing. It was the same offense every time he punched somebody, but the punishment was different depending on who he punched. And that's true with us when we get in the Christian world, right? We do a lot of things. We're all fallen human beings. We all sin. The question is, it makes a difference who we are offending. Because the consequences usually change. That's the beauty of the Christian life. God gives us our free will to, do, to decide whether to obey or not to obey, but he always reserves the right to determine what the circumstances and the, and the consequences are for our actions. That should humble us. It should change the way we think about what we're opposing. It should make us contemplate, God, if this is your will... Let it be known to me so I don't stand against what you're trying to do. I think it's so important as we get in this because the enemy will use people against God's people, against God's causes, right? And so we got to understand, are we that person at times? I've been that person at times, regretfully and shamefully. And, you know, sometimes it takes an understanding to really think about 
what we're against as well as what we're for. See, the enemy will come at us and has many strategies to come at us. I'm going to talk about one of, I think, the three most important ones today. Pastor Jason's going to hit the other two next week that I think will be a powerful message, so please attend. And I think one of the things I want to talk about today, which I think is something that grips everybody, and to me, one of the enemy's things the enemy will attempt to do is to discourage you, to put you and embarrass you and put you in a situation where you just don't feel like God's working with you. And he does it from the outside, I think, almost always first. Look at verse 7. When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the people of Esad heard that the repairs to the Jerusalem wall had gone ahead and that there were gaps being closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble. There's always going to be opposition from the outside. And you know when that happens, it discourages you because you think, hey, God's for me, I'm going forward. And you're thinking, all of a sudden, man, everybody seems to be against me. And I think sometimes we don't recognize that that's what's going to happen. The other thing that happens is you get great criticism. I love what happened to John Wesley. He was a great English preacher of the 1700s, and he was considered a rather spiffy dresser, right? He was really into what he wore. And uh, Sunday mornings, he wore a bow tie with long ribbons that kind of hang down. You remember those? You've seen them on the old uh, judges that used to have those, right? And uh, after a Sunday sermon, a lady walked up to him. And she said, Brother Wesley, are you open to some criticism? And uh, he said, I guess so. Um, what would you like to criticize? And she said, the ribbons on your tie are entirely too long and inappropriate for a man of God. And she took out her scissors and cut them. And uh, a hush fell over all the people that were standing around him. And they, you know, Wesley calmly said to her, now, now may I borrow your scissors for a moment? And she handed them to him and he said, ma'am, are you open to some criticism? And um, she said, well, I, I suppose I am. He said, well... Uh, all right then, please stick out your tongue. <laughs> I think sometimes we don't realize how our tongue can get us into a lot of trouble and how our tongue at times can be used to discourage the work of God. I think it's so important sometimes for us to recognize that. I think all of us at some point in time in our lives are well-meaning people, but we let our tongue do discouraging things to other people doing well-meaning things. I think it's important for us in the Christian life because I think there's a difference between having input and somebody providing a recommendation or some advice. There's a big difference between that and criticism. Criticism, to me, always has a negative connotation to it and a lot of times has malice associated with it, like implying that you didn't do something or didn't think about something or you shouldn't have done this, right? And so as pastors or as leaders in the church, we should always be open to people providing insights, recommendations, advice, and all those things. That doesn't mean we have to take them all the time because at the end of the day, you've got to stand on what you believe God is doing, right? And sometimes God, you have to have that discernment to say, well, this person's brought into my life because I should listen to something they're saying. I should consider it. I think it always helps you formulate and crystallize your thought process on how to do something, right? And there's always going to be things to criticize in the church, right? There's always going to be, you know, music. You can, can criticize uh, 
the color of the carpet, the chairs, or, you know, whatever, right? And we could always do a better job of communicating, right? There's no loss for things to, com- to criticize in the church. The difference is between criticism and all those other things that are positive is that you're providing some insights in order to make things better versus criticizing to bring someone down. We, I don't think we realize how difficult that In marriages, it's brutal, right? When, when husbands and wives just criticize each other and don't look to do things and build each other up. I told my son yesterday, I said, hey, look, you know, you and Crystal have a responsibility to each other. You're going to either build each other up or tear each other down. Crystal, you need to be a kingmaker. And Joe, you need to be a queenmaker and build each other up because you know what? That's where it matters most. And I think the same thing for all of us is we're in the mission of doing something for God. We've got to build each other up. Yeah, we can always critique or criticize, but the reality is, some of the things we're doing are just awesome. Somebody may not like the guitar or the drums or what all those different things are, but when they all come together, worship's pretty good, isn't it? To me, I think that we have to understand there needs to be things that really help us to drive the culture and the community and the spirit of ourselves together, being one body. Doesn't the Bible say all the time, encourage one another while it's still light? I think we forget about that. Our greatest job I think we can do is to encourage one another at all times, even in the midst of the battle. To me, then it's most important. Yeah, you can say, hey, I would have did it this way, or I would have done this, or do you ever think about this? All those different things are important, but at the end of the day, hey, I think you're doing a good job. I don't know, maybe you haven't thought about this. Man, I think those are the things that leaders cherish as people that have that tender spirit to say, hey, look, I want to share something with you. Do what you want with it versus bring in the hammer. I think it's important for us to recognize we all have a part in that. And that's why when, you know, it doesn't always come just from the outside. We find out here that once the enemy gets on the inside, he uses the people on the inside to sometimes have the most damage. Look at verse 10. Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, the strength of the laborers is given out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also... Our enemies said, before they know it or seize us, we'll be right there among them and we will kill them and put the end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came out and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack you. They were buying into what the enemy was saying instead of trusting in what God was trying to accomplish. And here's the thing I think we need to think about the most. God is more interested in his relationship with you than in your performance or your accomplishments. God is more interested in your relationship with him than your achievements. Because that's really what matters, right? He's really not interested in comfort. He's interested in our character and how we display and, and, and obey him. Because at the end of the day, the Bible says that they'll know you're my disciples if you obey my commands. They'll know you're my disciples if you love one another as I have loved you. Tall orders. All action-oriented. See, if we really love God, the Bible says it's about what we do. Agape love is really an action word. 1 Corinthians, when you read 1 Corinthians on love, it says love is patient, love is kind, long as love is suffering. It doesn't, all action, nothing about feelings. And sometimes we just get so caught up in our feelings that we have to share everything we think. It's not necessary. And here's the thing. 
truth, like we talked about in week one, doesn't really concern itself with how we feel about it. Truth is transformational when we put it into action and we work on behalf of God. Amen? And that's what God's calling is for each and every one of us. The death blow to most ministries is when the, 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 the congregation gets discouraged or disillusioned. It really takes strong leadership with resolve to pull them out of that and sort of program again to see how God is working and what God is doing. Because the enemy goes after the troops when it can't capture the leaders. They couldn't get to Nehemiah, so what did they do? They went to the people. They discouraged them, scared them, and fed them with a bunch of things that they thought about other than what God was doing. So here's how I think we have to defeat discouragement. First thing I want you to, to, to do is take, take your hands. So if you've got glasses on, take your glasses off. This will be really quick. I want you to cover your eyes like this so you can't see anything and everything is black. Everything. Now, as you're doing that, I want you to think... What can you really see? Not, not what you don't want to see or what maybe you could see if you were thinking about it, but the reality is when you're doing this, you can't see anything. Everything is black. It's dark. You cannot see. It's not that you don't want to see or you're refusing to see. You can't see anything but blackness, right? Okay, you can take your hands away. Here's the first thing we got to recognize when we're dealing with things of God. There are some people that just will never see what God's doing, right? Not that they can't or they won't, they just, they, I mean, they, they won't or they, they, they refuse to, they can't see God at work. No matter what you do, they're not gonna see, right? There's some people, the Bible said, they're blinded, right? They're just blinded. They can't see what God's trying to accomplish. Don't need to get frustrated with that. That's God's issue and understanding it recognizes that people are going to come at you because they just can't see what God's doing in your life. Don't let it discourage you. Don't let it fight you. The key to doing that, though, is to remember the Lord. That's the first thing for me. Remember the Lord. Nehemiah in verse 14. Do not be afraid of them after they said all these things. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. I love what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, the remedy for discouragement is the word of God. When you feed your heart and mind with its truth, you regain your perspective and find renewed strength. Isn't that true? Whenever you're thinking about the Lord, it's hard to get discouraged. When you start to reflect on all the things the Lord has done in your life, I start to think about how the Lord, you know, utilized people and times. My son was looking for a job after he got out of liberty. He was having a tough time. And when he uh, apply for this job in Peoria at this Lutheran church, and they're asking him questions back and forth. He is having a debate with the pastor about baptism. And he shows me, he says, yeah, what do you think? I, this was my argument to him. And I read it, I said, Joe, that was a really theologically sound argument, but I don't think it's going to get you the job. I just want you to know that, right? He said, well, I got an interview, and I said, That's, I can't believe it, you got an interview. And so he went down there and he talked to the pastor. It turned out the pastor loved the fact that he was confident enough in what he believed to stand for, because he thought that was important in ministry, is to be able to stand on the truth that you truly believe. Who knew? Who would have known? If that would have been me hiring him, I would have said, forget this guy. He doesn't believe what I believe. Forget it, right? Man, praise God. And, and you know, I, I thank God for him. But God did all this. It, it's interesting because how he got the job, he started, was out, out of college, he just 
broken up with his one girlfriend. He was looking for another girlfriend. Met the girl on eHarmony. They started dating. She was from Peoria. Got to know the father. The father was in Bible study fellowship. And he says, hey, I know a church is looking for a youth guy. They already had picked the person they thought they were going to interview. But out of respect for this guy, they interviewed Joe and, you know, engaged him. And within about a week of that all happening, he stopped dating the girl, you know, which was kind of weird and difficult for Joe. But the next thing you know, he's getting interviewed. The next thing you know, he's got a job. It's an interesting how just God works in different ways. That's a small thing, but it's amazing how God, we have to remember how God has worked in our lives, how God has helped us to overcome, how God has helped us to, to do things that really made a difference, to see how his hand worked through everything that we've done. That's one of the things that was, gave me most confidence when we came to Merge. I had seen God work through so many different things. Pastor Tim, who was with me, all of a sudden couldn't help preaching anymore. And we were having issues with just, you know, kids' programs. And then Jason was having some things going on. And we met by God's ordained purpose, not chance. Called up to ask him about his building. And the next thing you know, we had this conversation. And the next thing you know, we started doing things together. And the next thing you know, people are getting saved. People are getting baptized. Things are going. To me, that was just God. And sometimes you just got to say, okay, we're going where you want us to go, not where I want to go. To me, it's the best place to go with God, where he's leading us. To me, I rem- how many people know the, the, have read the book Pilgrim's Progress? One of the greats of all Christendom, right? Uh, by the way, they're making it into a movie coming out this year. Pretty cool. But one of my things I really love in that movie is when Christian and faithful are walking and they find themselves in the marketplace and the, all the people that are selling this, their wares and the, the, the things that they're talking about, which is like mistruths, and they stand up in the marketplace and says, we only buy truth. Man, I wish that was the cry of the, uh, of the Christian. We only buy or accept truth. We're not going to listen to the things of the world or the spin that they put on it. We will only buy what we find in God's word because I remember how the Lord used this truth to change me. I know how the Lord used this truth to cause a movement that changed my family, my church, my city, my nation. Think about it. Charles Finney, back in the late 1700s, when he came in that second great revival in America, right? One guy. Started in Kentucky and Tennessee, and it spread all the way to the eastern coast because he, he had a resolve that God was calling him to call his people to revival. To me, every discouragement has been allowed to come to us in order that through it we may be cast in utter helplessness upon Jesus. Amen? Sometimes those things are meant to put us in a place where, hey, Jesus, if you don't do this, it isn't going to get done. And all of a sudden he does it, right? All of a sudden he uses us. I love what Billy Graham said. He says, some people have a warped idea of living the Christian life. Seeing talented, successful Christians, they attempt to imitate them. For them, the grass is on the other side of the fence is always greener. But when they discover that their own gifts are different, or their contributions are more modest or even invisible... They collapse in discouragement and overlook genuine opportunities that are open to them. They have forgotten that they are here to serve Christ and not themselves. Isn't that true? What a great statement. I can't imagine how many people have tried to emulate Billy Graham. Trying to be someone else, the way they do it, how they do it. 
instead of just being themselves. I think every pastor has struggled with that. You know, we always compare ourselves to this guy or that guy or that message or this message. And to me, that's the biggest source of discouragement for many of us. To me, I think not only we got to remember the Lord, but we have to recognize the battle is his. The battle is the Lord. Nehemiah 4.20, in this place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us, because they're, they're there fighting, right, for the, the, the ability to build the wall. And he says, rally to us, our God will fight for us. Isn't it awesome? We have to remember that. Man, God will fight for us in whatever he's calling us to do. First Samuel says, and, this, and that is all this assembly may know, that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give the enemy into our hand. That is so true. What we're doing, what we're doing, this isn't my fight or your fight or Jackson Creek's fight. This is the Lord's battle. We're just soldiers in it, looking to be used, right? Looking to be led. To me, I think once we understand that it's the Lord's battle, it takes the pressure off. It's not about the achievement. It's about the relationship. I want God to know that I'm his soldier. I'm ready for the orders. I'm ready to follow. Whatever happens, whatever happens, Lord, that's up to you. It's not up to us. If we grow, will it be because we have a parking lot? No. If we grow because I do a great message or Jason does great messages, no. It's going to grow because each and every one of us realize that we're part of God's army, called to do God's work in the places where we live and work, and we do it with what? The zeal because the battle is the Lord. So that person that refused to listen to you when it comes to the gospel, you're there because God put you there, and it's up to him to do the winning of that, of that soul, right? He just wants to use you. But isn't it a glorious idea that we're going to be used by the God who created the entire universe to do one little thing like talk to somebody about Jesus? What a privilege, what an honor. See, that's the third and final point is we need to fight the good fight, right? We need to realize that we're in it. We need to fight the good fight, verse 14, and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. In other words, get in the battle. Be part of the solution. To me, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is God calling you to do? Who's he calling you to talk to? Who's he calling you to pray for? Who's he calling you to, to do an act of kindness to? Who's he calling you to do? He's got to be something because God's always at work. Because the Bible says, Jesus told the apostles, hey, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Which means he's working. And he wants to use you to do the work. Are you available to him? It's interesting because when you look at it, <coughs> I read earlier that when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Amorites and the people of Ashad heard that the repairs of Jerusalem, the walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry and they plotted together to come against and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble. But verse 9 says, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard and at night to meet this threat. In other words, hey. We realized the battles of the Lord, so we went to him in prayer, but we did what we had to do. We posted a guard. And then it says later in the passage that each man went to work with a, with a, a gavel or a shovel in one hand and the sword strapped to his side. In other words, they went out to do the work, which we're always supposed to do with a sword. That's symbolism of me, and it says work to do for the kingdom, and that the truth of the kingdom should guide us in that work and protect us as we do the work. The question for us is, are we ready to do the work? 
to me, I think that we realize that sometimes I think in the church in America, <coughs> and, and I, I'm not saying anything negative against Mission Week, so please don't take it that way. But I think a lot of times we think we're just going to pay people to go and witness to Jesus somewhere else. And that's the work. It is part of the work, but what about the work right here? What about the work in Piatone and Manhattan and New Lenox and Orland Park and everywhere else? Who's going to do that work? To me, it's us. Who's going to do work on your block, in your neighborhood, at your workplace? To me, God's calling us to do the work. Guided by the truth, the Spirit of God. And when we do that, nothing can prevail against it. Spurgeon said the repetition of small efforts will accomplish more than the occasional use of great talents. I believe that's true. <coughs> it's interesting because I'm going to close with this. <coughs> this is, to me, one of the most incredible stories of how a small effort Small obedience changed the world, just like Nehemiah. There was a sobbing little girl stood near a small church from which she had been turned away because it was too crowded. When she was crying, she said, I can't go to Sunday school, she sobbed, and the pastor walked by her. Seeing her shabby and unkept appearance, the pastor guessed the reason and taking her by the hand, took her inside and found a place for her in the Sunday school class. The child was so touched that she went to bed that night thinking of the children who had no place to worship Jesus. What a heart. Some two years later, this child lay dead in one of the poor tenement buildings, and the parents called for the kind-hearted pastor who had befriended their daughter to handle the final arrangements. As her body was being moved, a worn and crumpled purse was found, which seemed to have been rummaged from some trash dump. Inside was found 57 cents, and a note scribbled in child's handwriting which read, This is to help build a little church bigger so more children can go to Sunday school. For two years, she had saved for this offering of love, when the pastor tearfully read the note, he knew instantly that what he would do. Carrying this note and the cracked red pocketbook to the pulpit, he told the story of her unselfish love and devotion. He challenged his deacons to get busy and raise enough money for building a larger building. But the story didn't just end there. The newspaper learned of the story and published it. It was read by a realtor who offered them a parcel of land worth many thousands of dollars. When told that the church could not pay so much, he offered 57 cents. Church members made large subscriptions. Checks came from far and wide. Within five years, this little girl's gift had increased to over $250,000, which in today's currency would be like $4 million. A huge sum for that time. Her unselfish love had paid large dividends. That caring pastor's name was Russell Conwell. He became the founder of what is known as Temple University in Philadelphia today. This little girl's name was Hattie Mae Wyatt who died in 1886. In a sermon on December 1st, 1912, which honored Hattie, Dr. Crowell reminded his congregation of the impact of 57 cents. Think of this large church, he wrote. Think of the membership added to it, over 5,600 uh, 5, people since that time. Think of the institution this church founded. Think of the Samaritan Hospital and the thousands of sick people who have been cured there and the thousands of poor who have been ministered to every year. Think of how in what wide house, which 54 cents of the 57 cents was used in the first payment, 
were begun the very first classes of Temple College. To me, if God can do something like that with just 57 cents, what can he do whatever we got to give? What can we do with just one little effort that you do on his behalf? One random act of kindness on his behalf. What can he do if each and every one of us in this place did something this week to bring glory to Jesus Christ to those around us? The Bible says that we can't even imagine or comprehend what God can do through us. We started off with that first verse in the first week at a first statement, I think, from... from um, uh, Moody, you know, what can God do with one person solely devoted to him? Look what he did through Moody. Those are great stories. It's great to remember the Lord. It's great to remind it that the battle is his. It's great to understand that all those things are in God's hands, but we've got to remember we've got to fight the good fight. And so this morning I want to challenge you. And I want to say, what is God calling you to do? What is God calling you to give? What is God calling you to be a part of? To get behind? To get ahead? Or more importantly, to lead? Because I know he's active. I know he's alive. And if that's all true, that means he wants to work through you and me and all of us together. To do what? Bring him glory. So the question this morning is, what is God calling you to do? For some of you here, it might be that you've never accepted him as your Lord and Savior. You've never realized that you're a sinner needing of someone to cover your sin, which is what Jesus did when he went to the cross. The Bible says there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood, and Jesus shed his blood on that cross to forgive you of your sin. And when you accept that and trust in that, the Bible says you have everlasting life in him. It's not about praying a prayer, although I think that's part of it, right? You're saved when the Bible says, when you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. So this morning, if you never trusted in that, and right now you're thinking, man, I believe that. The Bible says you're, you're saved. What does it mean? That means you have a relationship now with God, and he cares about that relationship. Not about all the things he's going to do through you, right? Because the Bible also says that, you know, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good work, which he's prepared in advance for us to do key is for us is to figure out what he's prepared for us to do and then do it. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Lord, as we get ready to finish up the series next week, I, Lord, I, I just ask you that you would stir our hearts. I think of what Nehemiah accomplished in 52 days, and Lord, I, I know it didn't, he didn't even need 52 days. If you would have just spoken the word, that wall would have been built in a single second. But, Lord, it's amazing how you choose to use us and the things of this world to accomplish your will. And, Lord, we ask this morning, and I think it would be the cry of every true Bible-believing follower of your son, Jesus, we want to be used by you. Lord, make your will known to us. Give us the courage and the strength to withstand, Lord, the obstacles that come from the outside, the criticism that comes, as well as that which comes from the inside. And, Lord, give us discernment and wisdom for the future. Lord, help us to be a part of something that you're doing. Help us, Lord, to just lead us and give us your presence as we go. 
Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come and worship you. And we're thankful for all the things you've done. As we remember all the great work that you've been doing, we ask, Lord, that you help us to realize at times if we're against you, help us, Lord, to understand our role and our place as we soldier on for you. Lord, speak to our, all of our hearts right now. And Lord, if, if your spirit has touched anyone this morning, I'd ask, Lord, as we start to singing, that they would just come down and come before the altar and just say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm a soldier ready for duty. Lead me. Guide me. Lord, we want to be people of action. We just don't want to be followers. We want to be doers of the word, not just hearers. Help us, Lord, and guide us as we move forward. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.